Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. God is on the side of the downtrodden. And if we side with the one in power who has the power, then we're not on the side of the Lord. It's just as simple as that. God, can you show me how to grow? These wings of mine are short and shattered in the cold. This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. With us today, we have Mary DeMuth, author of We Too. Hello, Mary. Hey, great to be here. You started your book with a sentiment that I often felt. I thought about the same sentiments whenever I was deciding if I would ever have children. I found myself wondering, how do I build a good and healthy family where I too remain good and healthy when I didn't have that modeled for me. Could you tell me a little bit more about those wonderings for you and, and kind of what were some of your thoughts that went through your mind as you became a wife and mother? Yeah, I would say that because I had walked through a significant amount of healing from my childhood sexual abuse in college, and I had told my husband my whole story, I felt like it would be fine because I felt like I had been 100% completely healed, which was so silly of me, but I naively believed that to be true. <laughs> it's like, I'm fine. I talked about it. It's cool. People have prayed for me. I'm good. Yeah. Getting married was a shocker for me. Um, so many triggering things happening. And I, I basically just chose to shut down in my mind and just grit my teeth. I always wanted to have children. There was this insatiable desire inside of me to build a better family and to kind of recreate what I didn't have. And I suppose that's probably not a good motivation, but I also just really loved my husband and I loved the fact that we could have children. Hopefully, I didn't know if we could, but I wanted to. The moment I had my first, I was terrified, of course. I hadn't even really babysat much up until that point. I hadn't really changed many diapers. And then every memory I have of my childhood, for the most part, was very not good. <laughs> so... I had no, nothing to rely on. I had no memory to go, oh, well, this is what a parent would do in this situation. I just was neglected. So I didn't have anywhere to go. So I basically decided as a parent that I didn't want to duplicate the home I was raised in. And so I just got on my knees and cried a lot. And so my basic parenting philosophy at that point was cry and pray, cry and pray. Please help me, Jesus. I don't know what I'm doing. And it seemed to have worked. But yeah, I was definitely not coming from a position of strength, mostly from a position of sheer terror and weakness. And then out of that too, 
came this desire for you to kind of wrangle your story, right? Right. So I don't know why, but after I had my first something happened, <laughs> giving birth to the afterbirth or something is like, now I just suddenly knew I needed to tell my story. I needed to write it down. I also, you know, dusted off this latent dream of becoming a full-time writer. And there was just something that birthed alongside my child that I needed to to deal with this. And uh, so I began more healing, more counseling, more praying, more talking to other people, talking to experts in terms of my sexual abuse story. And then in terms of writing, I just spent a decade writing in obscurity so that when the time finally did come for me to begin publishing in the early 2000s, I had perfected my style and I had become a quick writer and all of that was not for nothing. So I'm really grateful that I had that, that 10 of quiet and just being at home raising my kids and not having a lot of public ministry at that time. I am a little bit envious of that because I feel <laughs> very clear direction to, to jump in right now with little kids. And it's, it's hard for sure. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to not paint a picture that it's easy to be in ministry when you have little kids. And I don't think anyone would think that, but just in case you do. Yeah. <laughs> it is not easy. But I I really experienced a very similar birthing with my children. After I had my second son in particular, I had this huge turning point. I think it was the way I described it in season one was the trauma that I had been absorbing my whole life was coming out of my body. I couldn't contain it anymore. I mm -hmm. couldn't just grit my teeth, like you said, and just <laughs> make it. I, I couldn't do that anymore. And we too, when you write, you do share your stories of sexual abuse. Why is it important for you to share your story of sexual abuse in Me Too? Well, first, I wanted people to know I had walked that journey. While I didn't have the experience of being sexually abused in a church, the boys who did molest me were Mormons. And so I did have that kind of connection with someone in a church hurting a child. So yeah, and I think part of it was just, I believe the way God has created me is to communicate how he creates you is often the way that you also are created to heal. And so the way in which I heal is the way in which I'm gifted, and that is to write and speak. And so I began that journey of writing and speaking with much trepidation, especially about sexual abuse, because this was in the 90s, nobody was talking about it. And I felt very alone. I've been talking about it a very long time, and I would make audiences feel awkward. But the nice thing about making audiences feel awkward is that there were some people in the room who finally felt heard and seen and that they weren't crazy anymore. So I would get a line of those people coming up to me afterwards saying, thank you for sharing my story, because now I know that it's okay to share it. And, you know, I've kept a lot of these people kept it inside for decades, 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 yeah. decades. So one lady came up to me and said, I'm telling you my story. It's the first time. And she was like 74 years old. I thought, oh my gosh, that was a long time to keep something in. Hang on, I just need a minute because that was really familiar. <laughs> so after season one came out, which, you know, a lot of my community listened to and supported me in, but I had just very similar experiences. And like your book, you have to kind of put it aside, you know, and you said that too. I don't know if it was on your Instagram or in your book where you talked about needing to kind of take a break from that intensity of other people mm -hmm. sharing their story. Whew, deep breaths, everyone. <laughs> In your book, you talk about your living parent being a yelling and screaming voice in your head as you began to tell your story. 
for me, that voice and those voices, it's not just one living parent, it's many adult mentors in my life, the, those voices become so loud and powerful that it prevents me from being obedient to God's calling in my life. When you wrote your book, you had to share it with these voices. Can you tell us how that went? Well, thankfully, I had done it before. And so it was no big deal to share it and we too. But the first time I did share it was in a book called, it was my second book. It was called Building the Christian Family You Never Had. And I had to write that story in the first chapter so that the parents reading the book would know that I have walked that road where I didn't want to duplicate the home I was raised in. I was terrified to tell that story. And I wrote that book when I lived in France as a church planter. And I talked a lot to my editor and I said, well, I can't tell my mom that I'm writing this because I'll feel like she's on my shoulder while I'm writing it. So I will tell her afterwards. And he, so finally we went through all the edits and he's like, okay, you got to tell her now for legal reasons. I'm like, okay, okay. So here I am in France, everything's falling around us as church planters. Cause that's what happens. And mm -hmm. I have to send this manuscript to my mom. And my fear is she's going to say it never happened. And basically she's going to withdraw her love from me. And those were such big fears. And I was hoping that my my expectations were just wrong. I was hoping that maybe that wouldn't happen. But that is exactly what happened. She told me I made it all up. It didn't happen. And she withdrew her love from me. And that began about a 10 to 15 year almost silence between the two of us. I'm an only child. But here's what happened. After she wrote all those things and I had my cry, I realized that the thing that I had feared the most, and even Job says this, the thing that I feared the most has come upon me. The thing I feared the most happened and I was still standing. And that gave me the power to be able to write my entire memoir, which was about seven years later. It's called Thin Places. There I'm, I, I say it all in much more words. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so then having written Thin Places and then a book called Not Marked, Finding Hope and Healing After Sexual Abuse, I'd had plenty of practice in my series of books that I've been writing about writing my story. And so I guess my encouragement is let it out a little bit <laughs> to some trusted, safe people and then let it out a little bit more and just begin to see you're still standing after each disclosure. And that project that um, trajectory really helped me. That's really good. I am I'm asking you these questions, Mary, with fear, you know, with fear of what your story means for me. Mm -hmm. And so because I related so much and continue even as you share more details with us and our listeners, I really even more deeply with mm -hmm. UCU, it is empowering and also frightening, which I think is like that's the the sweet place where God does is does does work is in that empowered and frightened place. So thank you. You're welcome. So they withdrew their love. They're accusate they accuse you of being a liar. I've also been accused of that and I've experienced these things. And what you did is is you kind of used that and harnessed it to to grieve and to continue to process your healing through your your additional works. Yes, it was really, I mean, this is a little bit cliche, but it really felt like that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Toto pulls back the curtain. And my mom, who had been about 48 feet tall, and I was desperately afraid of her opinion of me, became someone small standing on a stool pulling levers. And that just caused me not to be afraid of her anymore. I thought, oh my gosh, I've spent my whole life being afraid of a person and I don't need to be anymore. She can do the worst thing that I can think and I'm still okay. So, okay. I mean, I wasn't going to be like cavalier and say, bring it on, tell me more bad stuff. I'm not going to do that, but, uh, but I was still okay. And so, yeah, I, I guess I don't like the word leveraged, but 
for lack of a better term, I leveraged that experience. It, this, this great weight came off of my chest in that moment. I finally was free to not have to worry about a parent's opinion of me. And that's huge. Yeah, because parents and parent figures naturally have more power over their children for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. For children who are raised in unhealthy family dynamics, like we've been raised or with narcissistic parents, which is many times the case, or with abusive parents, how does that kind of childhood manifest itself into adulthood? In one million ways. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say, first of all, that because of all of that, I didn't have a childhood. And so I have a very hard time as an adult playing or resting or enjoying the moment because I'm constantly thinking about, am I performing? Am I doing something? Um, should I achieve something? I'm definitely an achiever type person. And so it's just hard for me. And there's a lot of grief, I think. Um, and it happens all the time. Like I still am grieving. I'm grateful that I had a chance to parent my kids in a different way. And there's such joy and healing that comes when I know that I loved my kids and they love me and we still continue in relationship. That's awesome. But there's also times when I look at my kids and I think, wow, I never had that relationship with my parents the way they have it with me. As a consequence, too, they never really had good relationships with their grandparents. And that makes me grieve, too, um, which also spurs me on to think when I get to that time when I am a grandparent, I'm going to be the most awesome grandmother ever. <laughs> so I think we're selling people a bill of goods if we say, you know, just say this prayer and go through some counseling and then you're going to be fine for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. The grief is always there. And the, you know, when you have childhood adverse experiences and there's, you know, the, there's a lot of studies on those, it will affect you forever. And will it get better? Yes, absolutely. I'm so much more healed than I was even 10 years ago, but there will always be grief. And that's why it's so important that we as the body of Christ, become deeply empathetic for the stories of others, even if it's not our story, because people are hurting and they need to know that it's normal to hurt and it's okay to grieve. Sometimes it comes in the form of like secondary trauma, and that can come from our families or from our, our church communities. And both of those things, I mean, when it's your family, I mean, that's the opposite of how your family ought to react when you disclose something like abuse or sexual assault or something like that. Sometimes it also comes from our church. So something you said really struck a chord with me. You were talking about your greatest fear happened and that once that happened, it was like it opened new doors for you to just speak your truth and tell your story. Because once your greatest fear happened, you realized you were still okay. While that didn't happen for me with my family, that happened with my church. Mm. It's supposed to be a safe place for you to go for support and for guidance when things are bad, when things are happening in your life and you need help. When you get a response from a church or from other Christians that is minimizing of your experience or shaming or victim blaming or even rejecting, it's just so incredibly disorienting and confusing because you start to second guess yourself and feel like maybe you're the problem. And that that's like a, a form of gaslighting in and of itself. It's it's more abuse heaped on top of abuse. Can you take a moment to explain 
secondary trauma, secondary abuse, and the impact that that has on survivors. Absolutely. And you, you said it very eloquently. It's, it's a sad reality in our family structures and in our church structures. I think it's because of this thing I call the happy world syndrome. We really, really want to have a happy world. And particularly in church, we don't want to believe that bad things happen to people within our church. We certainly don't want to believe that the youth pastor did that creepy thing. And so when some someone comes up with a voice that says, youth pastor did a creepy thing, your happy world suddenly gets shattered. And we're seeing this with uh, Ravi Zacharias' yes. wife, who just came out with a statement, and she may change it by the time this airs. But at the time of our recording, she basically said, everybody's a liar. None of this could happen. I, I'm an expert on my husband. He didn't do it. You guys are crazy. Basically, wow. that's what she's saying. Because she can't live in a world where her husband of however many years was raping and grooming and harming people under his care. He was being the opposite of a shepherd. But that's that happy world syndrome. It shatters. If she acknowledges the truth, like uh, Sandusky's wife, I think her name is Dottie, if they acknowledge the truth, they have to dismantle their entire lives. And I have empathy for that. I understand that. That would be devastating to me if I had to acknowledge a truth about a spouse like that. That would be horrid. Mm -hmm. And you'd have to like retrace backwards how many, you know, bad things had happened. But to get back to your question, uh, the happy world syndrome is alive and well. And so people just don't want to hear it. They don't want to know what's going on. They certainly don't want to know what's going on with other Christians or in a fam close family dynamic, if it's a relative. They certainly don't want to have that raised up that uncle so-and-so was a creeper because it messes with the paradigm and it, and it would mess with the paradigm. If uncle so-and-so is a creeper, then as a mom, I'm never going to have my kids around uncle creeper <laughs> and it's going to mess with the family dynamic during birthday parties and Christmas. I'm not going to be there because I love my kids too much and it's going to wreck everything. Well, it's not my fault that it's wrecked. It's uncle creeper's fault. But a lot of people would rather shame the person telling them the bad news and ignore the bad news and let it keep going on than bring it into the light. And that, that kind of manifests itself in this like pressure on victims and survivors to just be silent, just to not say anything. So what does that mean in the context of the church? What does that mean for church congregations? It means, it means we need to educate ourselves. And that was really why I wrote this book. And I, I need to qualify or clarify that I wrote We Too because I love the church. This is not a, I want to condemn the church and I'm angry. It's more like, no, I love the church and so does Jesus. And, and therefore, I think she can do better. We need to do better. We need to exemplify Jesus. And that's where it really gets very simple to me. If a child came to Jesus and said, I'm being hurt by somebody, would Jesus say, well, we don't talk about that in our family? family? Would he push the child away? Would he blame the child for bringing up the story? Would he question that child relentlessly? Would he silence that child? No, we know that he welcomed children on his lap. We know that he was irresistible to children. And so we have to look at this logically. Jesus would not act that way. So we as a church should not act that way. I love that. It's really a call to make our churches just safer places for women, for marginalized people, and for survivors of abuse. So taking that a step further, that silencing topic, I can recall many times 
throughout my life where I've had spiritual leaders or church members kind of take it upon themselves to tell me what God wanted from me with regards to like mm. specific behaviors or attitudes that I was supposed to have according to them. So that goes even beyond silencing and, and that becomes even more of a kind of control tactic. And what I've realized as I'm looking back on things in my life and ways that I was influenced by people who would speak for God to me to, t to try to get me to do what they wanted me to do, I'm realizing that's, that's kind of a form of abuse, spiritual abuse. It's a form of control. And what's scary about that is it's very covert, but I think it's very common in Christian culture today. Can you talk about how, why that control tactic is so powerful and damaging to survivors? Well, because if we are survivors, we have already existed in that dynamic before. So this would be a, a reminder of that same dynamic. I also think it happens in churches when church leadership does not respect the Holy Spirit inside somebody else. And so those kind of things where you say, well, you have to do this and you have to do that. It's better received if you say, you know, I've been praying about it. I really love you. Hey, here's some scriptures to look up and, you know, come to your own conclusions. I'm, I trust the spirit within you to make that decision. I also think there's, um, thankfully, a dismantling of a, a very highly patriarchal way of doing things. We're seeing it in our Christian culture right now, this dismantling of that, and I'm grateful. But, you know, I was the good little girl who always did what anyone ever told me to do. Why it's damaging is that I would just acquiesce when it was maybe damaging for my soul. Thankfully, I'm in a marriage that uh, if we're talking about like subjugation and marriage and things like that, that uh, my husband and and I both have a very egalitarian view of marriage and we have we have this, you know, mutuality and it's made for a very strong, good marriage. One person isn't higher than the other. We just both are trying to subjugate each ourselves under each other, you know, like we're both just as the scripture says, and I don't even like that word subjugate, but you know what I'm talking about, like to submit. It's mutual uh, submission under God. Yeah. Yes. And we, because we love the Lord and we are called to love him and love others. Sometimes that involves sacrifice. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean that there's this system in place where everything he says is right. And I have to kind of come beneath that and not make decisions for myself. It seems kind of silly to me now as I think about it, but I don't know. So that's kind of where we have managed that in our own relationship. Mm -hmm. That sounds like my story where I, I learned, I internalized all of those things that I was supposed to be, this quiet, sweet, respectful, submissive woman. And it just really laid the groundwork for abuse in my marriage. Mm -hmm. And I thought that what, I, what was expected of me was to be more submissive and more subservient and try to fix it in that way. And that didn't go very well. Um, so I was going to say, how did that work out? For it you? Didn't. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out. Another response that I think is really, really common in churches is for, for Christians and churches to just close their eyes and pretend like nothing's happening. Like you might disclose mm -hmm. something and they're just like, oh, okay, well, I don't really want to take a side. I don't want to blame anybody. I want to make sure I'm still in a good relationship with everybody. What is wrong with that kind of a response when somebody discloses any kind of abuse or assault? It means that we have forgotten that God is on the side of the downtrodden. 
And if we side with the one in power who has the power, then we're not on the side of the Lord. It's just as simple as that. I remember a time where um, my husband was in seminary at Dallas Theological, and we were in a small group, or I, I was leading a group of women. And one of them basically disclosed that she was being hammered on by her husband. And, you know, we could have, you know, got his side of the story, but it, she had small children and we basically risked our lives and protected her. Um, he started stalking us and we had to call the police. I mean, it was really scary, but that was the right, I don't, I'm not saying this to say I'm so cool or anything, but it was the right thing to do because she was helpless and he was harming her. And so I don't ever see Jesus not jumping into those kinds of situations. He he did intercede when people were hurting. He did dignify people who were on the outside or the outcasts of the world. He always, almost always sided on the side of the one that's unseen and uh, chastised the ones who were super cool and had it all together and were actually harming the Jewish people with their regulations and rules. So if we want to be more like Jesus, we need to, we can't just close our eyes because then the world's just going to go on as it's always gone on. And the enemy of our souls is going to win. He loves to steal, kill, destroy. He's a liar. He loves the darkness. He puts things, he loves to keep people in darkness and he does not like rescue. And he certainly doesn't like image bearers or light bearers coming into a situation and rescuing people. But that's what Jesus said. He said, I, I, uh, actually, in First John, it says that Jesus came for this very reason to destroy the works of the evil one. And if we are Christ followers, part of that is rescuing people from darkness. And anytime, what I hear you saying, anytime someone comes forward with a harm, we should know how to respond to that. And I understand, though, that more often than not, adults do not respond well to any kind of disclosure of abuse because they haven't practiced it, in particular with sexual cases of abuse. We don't talk about it in churches. We don't rehearse our responses, and we don't know how to respond appropriately. So we end up fumbling. And, you, and we're going to kind of talk in detail about how a church can respond well to survivors in the second part of this episode. So just hold tight to that thought. If you're like, well, what does a church need to do? We're going to answer that in a little bit. But in your book, you talk about several phrases that are common for survivors to hear. I was literally shocked. I had to put the book away and cry and come back to it that you said the very things people in my family said to me. In one instance, I disclosed my assault and asked for help with the investigation at the instruction of the detective who was covering my case. I was assaulted as a child also and did not report it until 20 years later because I didn't know that what happened was sexual assault. I thought I was an active participant in it until I attended a training and then that training talked about the markers of someone who's been assaulted and I had all of them. And that's when the puzzle pieces started to come together and I began to heal. The family member, whenever I approached him, said that he couldn't believe I was assaulted because I'm so strong. And so he ended up choosing to not assist the detective with the investigation because of that. And a slew of other comments that basically sum up to me being a liar about my abuse. His comments and his response felt like a new betrayal, that secondary trauma we've been talking about. But it felt like an even deeper wound. More responses I got were, why didn't you tell me, making my assault about them instead of about the assaulter and the assaulted? Why didn't you say something? I would have killed him if you would have told me. Why are you just now reporting? You're doing it for attention. Mm -hmm. What if your report ruins their life? So after I reported, I once again felt and was abandoned. 
by my family, to deal with my assault on my own without their protection and guidance that a family unit is supposed to, to serve. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's problematic and also really common about these responses? Again, I think we're going back to the happy world. Your family doesn't want you to, they don't want to believe this happened. And it's easier for them to say, maybe it didn't because you're so strong and you probably would have resisted. And so it must not have happened or, you know, whatever excuse that they'll say, it's, it's dismissive. It's wrong. It's unfair. It's unkind. And Romans 12 very clearly says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I'll kind of frame my answer with with a story. And I think I shared this in We Too, but I was in South Africa at the World Evangelization Congress for Cape Town 2010. And I was the the table leader and I had been praying that the people at my table will be from all over. And one of my prayers was, I really want to meet someone from the persecuted church, which he would, one of them was there. And then another guy was there who is from South Africa, who had his own difficult story of violence and, and things like that. But we all kind of shared our stories. And on the very last day, he came up to me and he said, I have to say something to you and I want you to pay attention to me. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, this is a holy moment. You need to just pay very close attention. So I did. And he got on his knee before me. And he said, I want to apologize for every man that has ever hurt you and violated you. I am so sorry. Please forgive us. And he really did like the thing that justice is about it. Daniel had those kinds of prayers. There's a, there's a lot of people in scripture that pray on behalf of a nation, the, the sins of the nation, without it even having to be their own sins. And so this is what my friend Malcolm did for me. That was such a beautiful response to my story. And he cried and I cried. And that was probably the best response I've ever had. Another best response is just a friend crying and saying, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's really all we're looking for. We're not looking for you to solve our problems. We're not looking for you, certainly not looking for you to blame us for not telling you. That's one of the most frustrating ones. First of all, people need to realize that most people don't tell in the moment. It takes them until their late 20s usually to tell. Also with me in my story, I was five years old. I did tell. I told my babysitter what was going on. She told me she would tell my mom. She didn't, but I thought she did. And the abuse kept happening. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, everyone knows, I guess this is okay. And then when I finally retold my mom a decade later, it took me a decade to get to that place of being able to say this happened. I had to tell her the story like eight, 10, 12 times before she would finally believe me. She wouldn't believe me the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time or the fifth time. I had to keep telling the story. I only chalk that up to the fact that I had just met Jesus and I had I had the strength of the Lord to be able to say, no, dang it, it happened. And I'm going to make you believe that it happened if it takes me telling the story over and over again. When I did go back to that place of violation a couple of years ago, and it was the first time I'd ever been back and I'm in my 50s now. So it was like decades for at least four decades and so when people say, well, why did you wait so long? And did it really happen? I'm like, no, I went back. My husband was with me. He's like, how in the world can you remember that? I'm like, how can I not remember it? I remember it like, like it was yesterday. Then of course I threw up. <laughs> so uh, after I went to that place talking about the body keeping the score, <laughs> it happened. And what was odd about the experience was I, every street I remembered, every house I remembered, 
where the park was, I remembered. And I, we were even like walking through the park, my husband and I, and I said, I think this park connects to the elementary school. I know it does. And he's like, no, I don't think it does. It doesn't make any sense that it would because it's over a street. And how would that happen? Well, sure enough, it did. There was a, a causeway that went over the street to get to, into the elementary school. So everything was exactly how I had remembered it. And I, I get so frustrated when people are asking the question, like, are you sure it happened? Like, yes, in Technicolor, I remember every single thing. Yeah, that's one of the things that my, you know, for me, I was young, um, around five or six also. And I remember everything about the room where it happened. But the person who did it to me was a person in my family who I'd never seen. And so I don't know who Mm -hmm. it is. That's the part that trips up a lot of people is how can you not know this person who did this to you? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but that's what the truth is. So I can't make something up and they just still have a really hard time believing. And I think it's a combination of that happy world syndrome. And if I have to believe this about you, then what do I have to believe about myself? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's so weird that we talk so much in churches, in Christian circles, we talk about good and evil all the time in a theological sense. But in reality, people don't want to acknowledge that it's right there in front of them. So again, I asked this question with a little bit of fear uh, laid in in my heart. What would forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation look like to these severely damaged relationships? What has to happen for full reconciliation to be possible? I was talking to someone this week who's uh, walking through an abusive marriage and she was so confused. And she said, well, he says he's sorry. And I said to her, well, you know what I have learned over the years is that when someone is truly repentant, you will know it, you will know it, you will know it. There will be no confusion. There will be no like, well, I wonder if they really, well, they seem manipulative. No, it, you know it, you, you know repentance when you see it. And so the only way to be able to reconcile fully with another person is for them to apologize to you and say, I did not protect you. I certainly didn't mean for this to happen. Of course, I'm sure that they would say that, but I didn't know what was going on. I fell down on the job. I'm so sorry. I hope you can forgive me. It, it grieves me so much that this happened. I am looking back at my life and thinking, what did I miss? You know, those kinds of things. Like, And that's the doorway toward reconciliation. Now, if there's not that and they are still blaming you or they're like, did it really happen or all that, then there can't be reconciliation as much as you would want it. The degree in which someone is repentant is the degree in which you can reconcile. So you can reconcile a little bit if there's a little bit of repentance, but you're not going to entrust your heart to them anymore because they've proven themselves not to be trustworthy and they've proven to be not willing to look at their own stuff. And that's where good marriages come in when you're both willing to look at your both your stuff and good friendships come in when you're both not, I remember having one friendship where, uh, that broke up and I'm grateful that it did, but the person, my girlfriend was, she was always right. And I was always wrong. And you just can't be in a relationship like that because it's not truthful. Who moves first? It always should be the one that wronged moves first, but you still, as a believer, have the onus to say, Lord, I don't want to have a bitter heart. I can choose to forgive no matter whether they say they're sorry or not. I guess what I'm trying to say is for me, if I experienced a reconciliation with someone, if someone came back to me repentant, I didn't want my own bitterness to be the obstacle that 
that disallowed it. And so I would say, well, as far as it's up to me, I'm going to live at peace with all men. As far as it's up to me, I'm going to forgive. But I also have to remember, and I want people to understand that forgiveness is not just a, okay, I did it on May 12th. And then uh, I never had to do it again. It's like May 12th every year and all the months in between, you have to keep forgiving. And the thing that I found for myself was that I would doubt myself, like I forgave that person and then I'd have another trigger or a memory would come up or I would grieve something else. And then I would think, oh, I must not have forgiven because I'm still sad about this. No, it just meant that there's another layer to forgive. So yeah, there is a one and done. That first initial decision matters. Like, okay, I'm going to choose to forgive, but that's just the beginning of the journey of forgiveness. You cannot control someone else's repentance. You can control your desire to forgive and it is a journey. How do we see this model of forgiveness and reconciliation in Joseph's life in the Old Testament? When he has his reconciliation with his brothers, he actually kind of forced them to see what they had done, sending them back and discounting them. And he's kind of testing them. And so he basically allowed them the beauty of being able to see their own sin and that you could see them with their kind of guilty feelings. The brothers like, well, this is happening to us because we did that to Joseph so long ago, like they had lived with their guilt for a very long time. And they made the connection. And then he, you know, of course, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result, which was the salvation of of that particular family line. And so Joseph had his way of even though he's wronged multiple times, misunderstood, thrown into prison um, wrongly, he somehow kept up with his relationship with God, he kept his integrity, and he eventually did reconcile with them. But there was it was without tears. You see him just weeping. He has to leave the room and weep and weep and weep. And all of his Egyptian friends are like, what is wrong with Joseph? And he's like mm-hmm. pulling himself back together. And I mean, there's there's trauma there. There's a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. I love how another story that you pointed to in your book was the story of Zacchaeus. And that made me think more specifically of domestic abuse situations and how often Christians will will push for reconciliation in those situations and that forgiveness and reconciliation are so are tied together as if they're the same thing. Survivors are, are pushed to go back and reconcile with their abusers. And w- when there's no action being taken by the abuser that, that proves that they are truly repentant. You, you talked about in your book how Jesus declared Zacchaeus saved after he had done two things. He had acknowledged that he knew he had done wrong. He had wronged a lot of people. And then he also declared specific intentions to restore the wrong that he had done. Can you talk about just the importance of repentance that involves action aimed at restoring wrong? Yes. And first, I will say that if the person who perpetrated was pedophilic, is um, an older person against a child, it's almost nearly impossible for them to change. And I know that the gospel would mitigate against that. And I, I agree that the gospel reaches everybody. But if you look at statistics, it's very hard for someone who has preyed upon a child to change that orientation. In fact, in some parts of Europe, they call it a normal orientation, which just makes me sick, but they do call it an orientation. And so if you have this bent and you've done it your whole life, they can say a lot of words and they can try to look at Zacchaeus and say, well, I'll just do that. I'll repent and I'll say that I'm going to do these four things intentionally to make sure they know I'm right. Just be very cautious of that. Because most of the time, if someone is a predator with multiple victims, they have become very adept 
at using words to deflect their blame and to deflect what they did. Or they also are very good at false repentance. And so that's where you get into these situations in churches where I've heard where the pastor will say, well, brother so-and-so has repented and you're in sin for not wanting to meet with him in this room. Well, that's ridiculous. First of all, um, the pastor is re-traumatizing the victim by demanding that and also not even thinking about the ideas of justice. First of all, probably a crime has occurred and they should have been telling the authorities. Second of all, he's not equipped to do that kind of investigation and maybe this guy his friend. Well, then he's not, he is biased in that investigation. And so there's just so much there that we have to be careful of. Sadly, we see this in a lot of abusive marriages as well, where people who have been around church long enough, and they love to go to churches to pray on people because we're so trusting. They've learned the language of Christianity without the power of Christianity. Mm. They've said the words, but they don't mean them. They're using them. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep and they're talking like sheep but they will devour like a wolf and we have to be careful. And we too, you mentioned that properly placed anger is deeply healing. I want to spend a little second thanking my friend Brandy. The day after I reported the crime from my childhood and got those responses from my family, I called my closest childhood friend. She and I have been best friends since we were eight years old. She and her family, her parents and her sister, they lived my childhood alongside me. They saw the same things I saw. We've loved Jesus and each other for a couple of decades and through many difficult seasons. And so when I nervously told her what they said, I wasn't really sure how she would react. I was fearful that she would react similarly, but she didn't. She cried angry angry tears. She grieved. She wept. She didn't know how they could respond like that. She placed blame and anger on those who harmed me. And that conversation with her will forever be an anchor in my healing for me because her anger was then joined by her parents' anger on my behalf. Properly placed anger. I just want to shout that out from your book when you talked about that. Properly placed anger is deeply healing for survivors. And like you say, anger fuels reform. Anger can be good. It is good in a lot of cases. And I'm excited because this season, I'm also interviewing Soraya Shamali. She's the author of Rage Becomes Her. And on the episode, we're talking specifically about the power of women's anger. And it's a really good one. There's something to be said about that. And and what's ironic to me is um, now as an author and now a literary agent, people ask me, you know, how, what makes you write a book? And almost always, I've written 43 books. And every single day I say, I must be pretty angry because I write books when I'm angry. If I Same. see an injustice, out there, I have to write about it. And it's just a compelling thing by the Holy Spirit. And that anger then fuels that book because I'm basically saying something's not right. We need to do better. And so that's why I just kind of agree with you on that. And that's the healthy and constructive way to do it, right? So when we see something that angers us, we do something about it. Anger fuels action, fuels reform. We shouldn't be shying away from these things and injustices that do make us angry because in the right context, we can use that anger to really bring justice for the, for the world. Talking about rightly placed anger reminds me of your teachings on privilege with the maze metaphor. Will you share that metaphor and also how this is an example of why it's important to share our stories? to talk about abuse in churches. First, I'll say that having been in church for many years, I can count on one hand, maybe uh, how many times sexual abuse has been brought up from the pulpit. I have felt, unless it's me who brings it up, like I just have felt so alone. And so I think that's why it's important that pastors start doing it because I guess they're worried, oh no, people are going to be sad and they're going to need counseling. Well, isn't that the job of a pastor to shepherd his flock or her flock? Do it. I'm sorry, but I just, I'm just going to get on my little 
soapbox here and say, <laughs> it just makes me mad. But uh, in terms of the maze metaphor, I read it in an article, I believe it was in Christianity Today, and they were talking about an unrelated issue, but it really made sense to me as a sexual abuse survivor. And in that, if you're standing above a maze and you see people that are the very back of the maze and they have to make like 28 right turn, correct turns to get to the very end of the maze. And then you've got some people who are like right at the very end of the maze. They really can kind of almost see out of the maze. Like they only have to take like one or two little turns. And I think that's where we need more understanding in the body of Christ. As a sexual abuse survivor, I'm at the end of the, I'm at the very beginning of the maze, having to make so many decisions to get to health. Whereas you maybe only have to just kind of, well, it's no big deal. You just do this. Um, they have like one or two turns. And I think looking at it that way and seeing that people who have trauma and not necessarily just sexual trauma, just trauma are at the back of the maze trying so hard to make all these decisions and all of these wrong turns and we're being blamed if we go left when we're supposed to go right. And, and we're being judged by people who don't have that experience of the maze. And so I think we need to be careful about our judgmental attitudes when we haven't walked that journey. I've heard people in churches say they can't understand why it's still a problem for survivors. And that just reminded me of it. Well, you're speaking from a place of privilege. I'm so glad you don't understand trauma. I'm so happy for you to have not experienced trauma, but I have. Please help me get to healing since you know the way. So thank you for sharing that. Finally, your book is directly tied to the Me Too movement which again was an anchor for me in my healing. That was the first time I publicly, all I tweeted was hashtag me too. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the first time I, I shared my story and it was through a hashtag. And so I was a huge fan of it, still am. Tell me, how do we see Jesus's life aligning with the Me Too movement? That's a great question. And I think it is, it, it gets back to his interaction with the woman at the well, I think. I love that he has the longest theological discussion with anyone known to man in the New Testament and all the gospels with this woman at the well. She is overlooked. We have often judged her. We've we've called her like this divorcee and she's, you know, a sinful woman, not realizing that in that time she most likely was divorced because they could offer a certificate of divorce for any old reason. And most likely there's no children. Uh, mentioned, she probably didn't have children because she couldn't and she couldn't produce an offspring. And so now she's treated as this outcast in her own society, outcasted by Jewish society, outcasted by men, being used by a man right now at this moment. She's probably providing sexual favors for him so she can survive in this uh, particular you know, time in the world. So she's got moxie and she has this long conversation with Jesus. Does he malign her? No. He, he asks her questions. He interacts with her. He has this long conversation. And when she goes back to her place, she says, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And she doesn't say it in a shameful way. The result of her testimony was that that whole village started to know who Jesus was. If Jesus is the one who crosses through Samaria, which is a forbidden place to go for Jewish people, and he crosses over the line to talk with a woman because a man's not supposed to talk to a woman, and he crosses over the line to talk with someone who's hated in terms of her race, then he is on the side of the Me Too movement because we who have been sexually abused have a lot of similar traits. We are judged, we are maligned, we are misunderstood for being loose, maybe. Um, There's all sorts of things that we can relate to her with that. And yet we see Jesus dignifying her, loving her, welcoming her into the kingdom and just being awesome with her. Yeah. And so, yes, of course, he's aligned to the Me Too movement because he's on the side of those who have been hurt. I see 
a huge difference in the way that Jesus treated people, women, and marginalized people, the underdogs and the outcasts, and the way that the church treats those same groups of people today. What is the church missing? I think it's just a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit within. I think we've quenched the Spirit for so long that we've we don't hear it anymore. And the Spirit within is going to say, "Go." cross the street and help that person. It's going to say, go empathize with that person who's hurting. And if we've been quenching the spirit for years and years and years, we're never going to know what it sounds, what he sounds like anymore. I think we're, I think also we're in love with power and domination. And we have wrongly felt that Christianity was a, was a religion of just get the right people in the right places. And we need to have all this power. And uh, if only we could have all this, then things will be better. I used to always think it was weird. Like when a celebrity met Jesus and the Christians would be like, Oh, it's so good. What a great testimony. And I just think that's not really the way the kingdom works. The first will be last. The last will be first. The small will be big and the big will be small. And so Jesus isn't going to build his kingdom through cool celebrity people. He's going to build his kingdom through outcasts and people who have been broken by the world and who have understood that it's his strength in our weakness. And, you know, that scripture about God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. I just think that's really what it's about. I think part of our problem as the body of Christ is we worship celebrity. We worship certain kinds of men. We worship certain types of leaders because they get things done. But we, Jesus was never like that. He wasn't ever like that. And he didn't come in to overthrow Rome. He came in to overthrow our sins. And so I think we just need to re-preach the gospel to ourselves. Thank you for sharing the heart of a survivor. In the second episode with Mary, we're going to take a closer look at what scripture specifically tells us about sexual assault and what churches must do in order to become a safer place for survivors of all kinds of abuse and violence. So thank you, Mary. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for letting me preach. I live south of the Mason-Dixon line, so I never get to. So it's always nice to kind of preach a little bit in the south. (laughs) Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director. Molly Bays is our social media manager. And Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown who loaned us a professional podcast space, which helped make our lives easier and more balanced and also exponentially elevated the quality of the podcast. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs and Friendswood. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thank you.